I-94 on Lumpen Radio. Welcome, everybody, once again to another edition of I-94 right here on Lumpen Radio. My name, as always, is Mr. Jamie Trecker, and I am joined by Mr. Jeremy Kitchen. Good morning. And Mr. Michael Sack. Good morning, Jim. And today, we are going to be speaking with the author, Catherine Lacey. She has a new book out. It's called Pew. It is out from Farrar, Strauss, and Giraud. Catherine, welcome this morning. Thanks for joining us. Hi, thanks for having me. Catherine's joining us through the miracle of FaceTime up in Wicker Park because we are in another one of those periodic lockdowns due to the pandemic. Catherine, we're sorry we can't have you in the studio in person. Please don't hold it against us. Oh, some other time. Some other time. Uh, Catherine, new book. Uh, let's let's start off kind of by talking about what this book is and what it is. And it starts off with uh, an interesting epigraph from Ursula Le Guin uh, about. And it comes from one of her. Uh, I don't. It was. It was concluded in a short story collection of hers. I know in Britain, uh, and that mm-hmm. short story, of course, is the ones who walk away from Omelas. And Le Guin's story is the tale of a community that hosts a festival every year uh, of sorts. It is an idyllic, utopian community. But in Le Guin's story, a child uh, is tortured every year and and it is thought that because that child takes all that community's sins uh that the rest of the community is able to live this kind of utopian pleasant life why did you start your book out with you know this particular uh epigraph and and i guess what were you trying to get out here because you know when everybody drops Le Guin's name that's a pretty big challenge uh, um, for a writer <laughs> yeah uh well I was writing Pew for a while in this kind of unusual for me fashion where I wrote it really intense. I, I wrote the first draft um, very quickly for me, just like over a period of um, um, I think maybe two months or something. Um, and But then I, put, I wasn't completely right. I just was something wrong about it, but I wasn't sure what. So I put it away for a while and then I would come back to it. And I was sort of in this sort of back and forth, um, working on it really intensely and then being away from it completely uh, and, and rewriting like you know, almost all of it every time. Um, and it was, I was in a break when I heard, I, I read that story again for the first time and I, um, I, I had read it somehow like in high school or something and I, it, I guess it had stayed in the back of my mind but I hadn't really been thinking about it. And when I read that story, I sort of realized that it was it was a kind of key for me to figure out why the book wasn't working for me, why I was going through these drafts in the way that I was. Um, not that it was like not in terms of plot, like it's not like Hugh is not like that child, and it it it's not like a a one to one sort of um, relationship between the effect that the story had on me and the effect that it had on the book, or the, the, the process of writing the book, but. There was just something. There was something in it um, at the end of that story. Um, uh, they learn this child that's being tortured, that they they leave a kind of perfect happiness um, because they can't bear it to cause the suffering of of this one person. Um, and you don't know where they go. Like that, that, that's where the story ends. I mean, it's like a two two or three page story or something, but it ends. It ends in this um, this note of we don't know where those people go when they leave this town, and I was just sort of interested in um, in that gesture 
it, 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 it kind of helped me click a bunch of things. So that's why I put that epigraph there. And also, I just want to direct, you know, an epigraph is a place where you can direct people's attention to, um, you know, basically whatever whatever writer or, or story or book you want. And I thought the more people should be reading Le Guin, and that's a good place to start. Jamie pointed that I was talking to him about the ending of the book, which I don't want to go into because I don't want to have any spoilers. But, um, you know, and Jamie's like, well, read the, uh, the Le Guin story. And I, I read it after I read the book. And it was it was interesting because when I was actually when I was reading Pew, I had this like sense of foreboding, and and what I compared it to is when I read the Lottery for the first time by Shirley Jackson because I knew I just had this like uns it was um it was very unsettling because when as you're going through and the characters that Pew interacts with, um, in telling their secrets and also just their behavior and and mannerisms and things that I just had this like kind of dark unsettling feeling throughout the book and you know kudos to you because if you're able to do that with your writing I think that's um, pretty outstanding and I I, I I wanted to say too you know we all loved your book and that's not always, oh thank you we're not, it's not always the case but um I, I hadn't read you before and I, I'd read a bunch of, I read a review in the LA Review of Books and and unfortunately and I didn't know you lived in Chicago we did our research but I did want to say you know I, I wanted to talk about was the that sense of foreboding that I felt when I was uh, reading the book, did you have that when you were writing and was that intentional or is that just how it came out? Um, I, for me, intention is a sort of sticky thing when it comes to writing because I find that if I intend something, then that's not what happens. Um, but I do think over, over the course of revision, you sort of, have more time to sort of turn up or turn down a kind of dial. But I don't think, I think that, you know, from the very beginning I had this premise of um, this, this feeling like there was this person who didn't have a history and no one, people would look at them and not be able to know uh, anything about them. And of course that's not possible, you know, if we're human beings, we walk around, we see a person we can tell, you know, something about how old they are, what color their skin is, maybe where they're from, maybe their gender, you know, you can usually get some details out of a person that those details sort of suggest a history. Um, and I just had this feeling of well, what would it be like to be a human and for that history to not be apparent in the way that you appeared to others? Or what would it, what would it mean to encounter somebody whose, whose history was not apparent in their um, physicality? Um, and I guess, I guess that, I mean, that question just sort of, that, that, that's the whole question of the book that, I mean, of course, I, I didn't resolve it because it can't be resolved because it, you know, it's just not a resolvable question. So for me, that's the sort of thing that I like to write about, or I like to write into, um, or answers, uh, questions that I can't answer. And there was, um, there... so I, yeah, so I guess maybe that leads into a sense of foreboding. Yeah. And um, there was, well, and there was a lot of assumptions made by the townspeople, like I, for lack of a better way to describe it, mm -hmm. and, and when I was sometimes when I was reading those assumptions, and then um, there was one confession in particular that involved a river and drowning, and uh, that mm -hmm. when I read that, I was just like, oh no, what's you know what's going to happen down the road? So, um, but uh, I'm going to pass it over to Mike. He had a question for you. Go ahead. Go ahead. Jay. Well, I, I was just going to say just to back up here, um, we should talk a little bit about what the plot of the book is. So Pew 
is a person, and um, we're using that very deliberately because it's not clear through the book whether they're a man or a woman, uh, black, white, any of these defining characteristics, as, as Catherine's pointed out. Uh, they're found in a church, and um, they're passed around a town uh, in, in the townspeople's care, and the townspeople begin kind of opening up to this person who they name Pew because that's where they found him. And in the town, uh, there is also something called the Forgiveness Festival, uh, which I think was kind of where I got my sense of foreboding. This this always struck me as a, a bad thing. Um, kind of where I, I wanted to just go for a second, though, Catherine, you know, I got the sense through the book um, that this book owed kind of a debt to, I think, like 70s British horror. I was thinking of The Wicker Man and, and some of those other, you know, things that I'd seen. And Pew struck me somewhere, I, I mean, this is, you know, uh, this may be the wrong analogy, but he struck me sort of as like a, either a sin eater or a, a Christ-like figure to, to many of the townspeople. He was somebody that, uh, I'm using he, they were somebody uh, yeah, that okay. could be, you know, imposed, they could have anybody's feelings or needs imposed upon them. And there's one scene uh, late in the book uh, where uh, Pew is in a diner with the reverend and a woman uh, comes up and discusses various things. I don't want to give too much away on that, but, you know, there was a sense of, I just got this sense of kind of 70s British horror from this, which also, you know, in my hazy memory of that time period was really wrapped up with kind of pagan tradition and religion as well. And I wondered, was that kind of a jumping off point for you in writing this book? I think maybe, I, I mean, I was born in the 80s, in Mississippi, and that's its own sort of horror show if you're a certain kind of person. And so maybe it's more of a you know 80s Southern Gothic horror. Yes, that that genre doesn't really exist in film or books except for maybe this one now. Um, but that, I mean that's the sort of genre that uh, I experienced my you know first 15 years of life. And so um, yeah, I think. In, when I was first, uh, like, um, I guess, well, when I was in my early 20s and sort of getting more serious about writing, uh, the first thing I tried to write was a book basically about um, being like an extremely fundamentalist child. I wasn't really, my family wasn't really like a, my family, but um, I was raised in church for many, many hours uh, a week, but I sort of took to it in my own sort of dogmatic way and, um, you know, like scoured the Bible for like how to behave. And I mean, and, and, you know, I didn't realize that that was unusual until I moved to New York, that not everybody had a kind of like obsessively moral childhood. Um, and uh, yeah, but it, it didn't really work. That, the, that book didn't really end up working partially because I didn't really want to be a character in it. And I didn't really feel like, I didn't really feel like my experience with religion in the South was important. It was more um, the atmosphere of, of the place that I grew up in, sort of um, the, the, the feeling of being religious was more what I wanted to convey and not something that was specific to me that wasn't like, you know, I wasn't trying to, um, I didn't want to. I just didn't want to be the character in the story, and so I think, um, you know, I put that book aside. It wasn't. It, it wasn't the thing for me to be doing at that time. And I think, I didn't realize until I was done with this that basically 
it's it's this kind of inverted memoir where there's no there's no um, personal information necessarily about like me or my childhood in there or my family or anything like that. But there is a kind of um, uh, that feeling that I guess that I was trying to convey ended up sort of getting in there. The setting kind of reminded me of, or just the tone, the feeling reminded me of Maurice Myers' short novel, The Seventh Mansion. Maybe, maybe it was. Oh, yes. It was a lot of it was the character of Z in The Seventh yeah. Mansion, mm-hmm. and it's just it's hard. Well, Maurice also said that horror in real life is much more disturbing than horror. I'm and I'm paraphrasing it, but it, than horror like that you would read and you know. Well, I'm glad you said that. The Exorcist or something. Yeah. Because that what you just said in combination with. Um, your first comment, Jeremy, about intention. In some of the reviews I read of, of this novel, Pew, um, they talked a lot about allegory and re- reading it allegorically. I didn't read it that way. I could see how you would and, and read it as a critique as of the Christ, Christian right and blah, blah, blah. I didn't read it that way at all. I, I just read it straight and took the characters for what they were and, and how they were written. Um, and... I thought it was – this is what's great about fiction to me. This is why I like reading fiction more than anything else. It's funny because the way Christian conservatives are portrayed in news media and, and a lot of nonfiction is totally hollow and you know stereotyped. But the way that these characters came across, you know, the people of the community, this, this conservative religious community came across was – really sympathetic to me. I mean, they, they were complicated people that I felt mixed emotions about, like I do people in real life. Um, so I, I was going to ask you uh, if your motives were allegorical at any point during the writing process, because that seems to be how people have taken it. Although reading it that way for me kind of takes, not kind of, it takes pretty much all the fun out of it. Well, also, it, it, to me, it, that comparison, the allegorical comparison, I, I didn't feel that. Like, I felt like, you, you know, Flannery O'Connor is considered a Catholic writer, but she, it's not overtly Catholic while you're reading it. And I feel like, although mm-hmm. this was, um, I don't want to say a critique, but uh, an explanation of a different world that I'm not familiar with, there was religious overtones, but it wasn't overtly religious. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, but <sighs> I, I got to agree. I didn't feel necessarily it was allegorical. I, I can see why somebody would say that, and I'd, I'd love to hear what Catherine says, but it wasn't really until the end of the book mm-hmm. that I felt there was any possible larger social commentary that might relate to things that are going on today in America, if that makes sense. Um, yeah. yeah. Does that make sense? You know what I'm saying, Catherine? Yeah, it, it, it does. And um, I, I don't, I don't think I, I, I wouldn't know how to write an allegory. And also, like I was kicked out of advanced English in high school because I wasn't like serious enough about <laughs> writing about things You're like allegory. Good company. Um, yeah. like, Who was that teacher? Let's, <laughs> let's name and shame. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, it, Mr. Padilla. I mean, I actually like recently got to talk to my high school like magazine or something they called me to talk about um english class i got to i got to um call up mr pia he was correct to kick me out of that class though i wasn't i wasn't like ap literature material um and anyway um but uh i'm glad that you brought up the same mention by uh, maurice meyer because it was the weirdest experience because basically we were writing those we were writing our books 
I just met her like a couple of years ago and uh, we were both finishing up. She was finishing up the mansion. I was finishing up Pew sort of as we were becoming friends, but I had no idea what her book was about. She had no idea what, what mine was about. And then um, I, you know, I got to read it a few months ago and it was, it was just uncanny. They're so similar to me. Those characters are so similar. Um, and the concerns in the book are so similar, even though like the, um, you know, the approaches, I mean, in some ways, they couldn't be more different, except in like, in like the kind of deepest content of them. But I, um, I love that book, Seventh Mansion, and um, I wish there were like a thousand more books like that in the world. Um, I, but I think ultimately, and and actually, the thing that they have in common is, um, or the, the way that I saw it anyway, was that like I want a book, a novel, to be a space where the reader is um, entering into in order to question something that they may not think about in their in their daily life i don't i'm not writing a narrative that somebody can think oh this is a real person or this is a real situation or like this is like a movie in my head like none of those um, reasons for writing something or reading something really appeal to me it's more that i want i mean as a reader and a writer like i want books to be spaces where i can think about um something sort of obliquely that maybe it's difficult to think about directly um, and the questions that the seventh mansion raises um, of how to be how to be ethical in an unethical world, and um, what your actions, um, how your actions reverberate both within your community, but also like over the span of time. Um, I hadn't really thought I hadn't thought about it in, in quite the way that I that I did think about those questions when I was reading um, the seventh mansion. And I wanted I wanted Pew to do that also. Um, there's this tension for me, like I'm not I'm, I'm atheist now, but I, I still kind of, you know, I have a soft spot for the religiously um, fervent, um, partially because I know from you know personal experience and and meditation now, and I think um, and you know other experiences that that the only true thing about being alive is that there's a kind of there's a nothingness right there's a there's a nothingness there's a there's a part of you that is not a self there's a part of you that has no history there's a part of you that connects with other pe people that is it doesn't know your past and it doesn't have anything to do with your memories it doesn't have anything to do with um the material world and and still we have to live in the world and i think the tension between these two um, reality of, uh, of there being a kind of, of a, a, a purity or an essence of a person that is not their race and it's not their gender and it's not their past and it, it's it's not it's none of that and it's um, yeah just that just the knowledge that that exists and and yet like the you know the reality of this crazy administration and this virus and my community and you know wanting good things for other people and wanting to for there to be less suffering around me um i find that it's there's so much tension between those two realities to me and i wanted the book to kind of try and get in between in between them somehow um 
And this is a good point, actually. To, it, it, does. it does. absolutely. And, and this is a good time to stop for a second and actually hear a selection from uh, Catherine's book. We are talking with the author, uh, Catherine Lacey. Her book is Pew. It's out now from FSG. As always, we want to thank our reader, uh, Shanna Van Volt, who, by the way, Catherine, is a preacher's daughter, so she has some things in common with this book. Music this week is by Angel Bakdaweed. Uh, so we're going to be right back after hearing this short little break. You're listening to I-94. Well, the Reverend said, ain't it nice to be here with a home-cooked meal? After everyone had eaten, the Reverend took me out to the front porch and we sat on the swinging bench he held still with his legs. He told me, quietly and not unkindly, that he really did need to know a few things about who I was, where I'd come from. These are strange questions to have to ask, but we need to know them in order to provide you with a safe place to live. For one, and I'm sorry if this is embarrassing to be asked, but we will need to know if you're a boy or a girl. There's no reason for you to be embarrassed or ashamed of anything, and we don't think you've done anything wrong. We want you to know that. We really don't think you've done anything wrong exactly, at least not with regards to you not obviously being a boy or a girl the way everyone else is. What I mean is, you need not be ashamed of looking the way you do, as God loves all his children exactly the same. But it's simply not clear to us which one you are, and you have to be one or the other. So unless you want us to figure it out the hard way, I think you should just tell us which one you are. Much easier. The insects sang in the heat around us. I looked back into the house through a window. Through two open doors I could see the edge of the parrot's cage, could watch the parrot sidestepping along its perch, bobbing its head, then stepping out of view, then into view again. I did not look at the reverend. I had nothing to say. Now, you might know that some people these days like to think that a person gets to decide whether they are a boy or a girl. But we believe, our church believes, and Jesus believes that God decides if you're a boy or a girl. So when you answer this question, that's the answer we want. Did God make you a boy or a girl? I looked at the porch's ceiling, its floor. It may be that you have some other feelings on the matter, that you're not really a boy or a girl, and that is really fine with us. We're very tolerant and you can think whatever you like, you really can. But just for our purposes, what is it that we would call you? The Reverend was silent a while, listening to the insects and nothing. For a moment the Reverend seemed to realize that his questions and statements kept leading us to the same empty place. How about this? If you're a boy, if God made you a boy, clap once, and if God made you a girl, Clap twice. A mosquito was sucking blood from my wrist. I watched it swallowing and swallowing, then flying away. That blood was the bug's blood now, not mine. Never mine again. Whenever you're ready, whenever you feel ready to clap, just go on and do it. Once for a boy and twice for a girl. I thought of the message I'd seen in that yellowed newspaper. The mother hunting her son for nothing but to find him. I felt sure there was no one hunting me for any reason, not even just to find me. I must have had a mother, but I also knew I didn't have a mother. I wasn't anyone's son or daughter. What a freedom that was and what a burden that was, to not have a home to go home to, and to not have a home to go home to. All I could have told the Reverend, if I could have spoken, was that I was human just as he was human, only missing a few things he seemed to think I needed, a past, a memory of my past, an origin. I had none of that. I felt I wasn't the only one, that there must have been others, that I was part of a we, only I didn't know where they were. We were, and I was, not entirely alone. Maybe we were all looking for one another without knowing it. 
And that was a short uh, selection from Catherine Lacey's new book, Pew. Uh, as you heard in the book, we were talking, uh, the main character was actually being drilled by the reverend, who was another main character in the book, about uh, what gender they are. You know, there was an interesting tension in this book, Catherine, about why it was important for the people in this town to know what race this character was, what gender this character was. Uh, it, it seemed to become kind of an all-consuming thing for some of the characters. Uh, I, I guess my question, and, and maybe this is naive of me, was why? Why why, why did the characters respond to Pew in that way? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think I, I think it would be natural to, and yet there's something kind of grotesque about it. Like, it, I can't, I, I, I still think if, you know, someone suddenly entered my community and I it, like Pew and, and no, no one could agree upon any, anything about them and they weren't speaking. And yet we always knew it was that they were a, a human body that, that deserved care in some way. Um, I think it would be, I think it would be natural to be like, um, where did this person come from? And yet there's also something really grotesque about wanting to nail somebody down with these, um, with these markers of, um, you know, what what their body is, where it's from, who it belongs to, um, and and yet I, I still think it, it, despite the fact that it's it's grotesque, in in, in one respect, it's um, it's natural to want to know to know these things, and and I think the fact that I I kind of failed my own test as I was writing the book because I wanted I wanted to be the I wanted to be the character in the book that didn't care that could just take care of a person without needing to know these things. And yet, I know that I I wouldn't be that person. I would I would be troubled, and I would want to know um, how to how to frame this person. Um, yeah. In in regards to what you were talking about earlier with the talking about the the religious aspect of your upbringing and and how you're an atheist now, one of the things you know that I thought was very powerful for me is that, you know, these people were trying to help this one kid that was a war orphan, um, and his name's escaping me. Was it Hector? What was his oh, name? Oh, Nelson. Nelson, I'm sorry. Nelson. Nelson. And, you know, they they brought him into this lovely home with all these kids and everything, but then he drinks whiskey all day. And, you know, it, it's so, to me, it was like he was addressing his trauma without uh, doing it through the family. And, you know, so you have this like support network, but they're not really giving him the support that he needs because, you know, he's drinking whiskey all day and not talking to people. And he, he opens up to Pew and uh, his character was very reson uh, resonated with me a great deal because um, I think in a lot of communities, we have this idea that that people are doing the right thing and doing good things, but then you dig deep into their, you know, like I grew up in the suburbs of Detroit, and if you looked at it from the outside, it would be this, like, you know, that's where I want to raise my children. But then when you walk in the door, and then you're like, oh, I don't want to raise my children there. Does that make sense? And I, I feel like they were giving him, they felt like they were supporting him, but in a way it was really um, just very base and shallow. Um, if that... Yeah. And I, I just want to... I, I think, Go ahead, yeah, I think there. There often we think that we're helping somebody. Um, uh, what we think is like a you know a good moral act sometimes completely misses the mark. And I think um, you know there's something about Nelson in particular where I like remember that there was this kid at that went to my church 
who had been adopted and um and I don't know I don't even remember where from I, I don't know anything about him and in some ways like you know it was middle school and I was not a particularly like social socially um advanced child but there's a part of me that looks back and I remember how ostracized he was and I remember how maybe the first year or so he didn't really speak to anybody and then eventually um he would he would talk but it was I I knew that I knew that um he wasn't it's not I don't know anything actually about the family that adopted him so maybe he had a wonderful life at home but I I remember seeing him so separate from everybody and doing nothing about it um and I, even now like I don't remember his name I don't know where he was from and I think I could recognize then that our community was failing him and yet um I, I you know I did nothing about it um and I, I think his kind of his bearing really uh, stayed with me and I didn't realize it until it kind of showed up in that character um yeah okay. but I do think that it's, it's sometimes easy to think that um we know how how to help people, um, or we know what they need when actually what people need is, is often much more complicated um, than we would like it to be. Right. We're speaking with the author, Catherine Lacey. She's got a new novel out called Pew. It's out from Farrah Strauss and Giroux. We're going to take a quick break right now for station identification. When we come back, we're going to hear another selection from her book. Once again, we want to thank Shanna Van Volt and the International Anthem Recording Company. And we want to remind everybody that you're listening to I-94 right here on Lumpen Radio. We'll be back after these messages. And now, back to I-94 on Lumpen Radio. You wait here, Hilda said as I sat. I've just got a few papers to fill out before you can see the doctors. Are you all right by yourself here? I looked around. She nodded and went away. There were seven televisions around me, all of them playing the same station. A crowd of people had gathered somewhere with signs that said, Answers now, and bring them back. A man in a suit held up a microphone to the mouth of a woman who spoke loudly into it. We have reason to believe the town council or someone in the government knows what's happened to the missing. That's what we believe and we know we are right about what we believe. We are asking for them to tell us what they know and to at least tell the victims, the families of the missing. The woman's shouting voice softened and her face fell apart for a moment. She no longer looked like a statue of someone screaming, but of something more like a pile of papers left out in the rain. She regained herself and continued. My son, Vernon, he's been gone two weeks, and it's true some people here in Almost County underestimated Vernon, but I know he's a good young man and there's just no way he could run off for no reason. I want answers. We all want answers. The screen cut to a reporter interviewing a child holding a picket sign. No Jesus, no justice. No Jesus, no justice. The child smiled and spoke softly into the microphone held at her face, one hand waving her wide skirt from side to side. I did not watch the television after that, though I felt all of the televisions were watching me. Nearby there was a man with hair and skin the color of a dead sky, his stomach and chest rounded out like a whole small person sitting on his own lap. Beside him there was an older woman wearing an apron, her dark hair pulled under a small white cap. In her eyes I could see an intricate calculation was always passing through her mind. Sad thing with those people in the television, the man said. Yes, sad, she said. It's troubling to see, very sad. Hmm, painful. But they don't have to be in pain and they don't know it. No, sir. 
I figure we're lucky to be here where we are. We may have other problems, sure, but nobody goes disappearing. She removed the wax paper from a small sandwich and held it to his mouth. His feet and hands, I now saw, were held down by leather straps to the wheelchair he was sitting in. He bit into the sandwich as if to kill it, then bit again and caught the woman's finger. She yelped a little, dropped the sandwich into his lap, then picked it up and kept feeding him. Beside me, a man with little wisp of white hair clinging to his head raised his cane to point at a television. On the screen, a man was standing behind a podium now, his eyes calm and distant. Below the man, a script. Elmo's County Mayor responds to anti-disappearance rally. The man beside me shook his head, bore his hazy eyes into mine. If you ask me, they should never put a picture of one of these darn politicians on the television. We shouldn't know they darn names or they faces. He sounded both angry and happy, pleased with himself and displeased with the world. It's what makes the whole thing a mess. They ain't supposed to be looked at. They're supposed to work. Same people that want the power want the fame too, but I say we should never know them by sight or name. Don't you think that work out better? We should just know what they can do and what they've ever done for other people and what they believe, what they think of things. The man laughed into a cough. His face was falling off his head in a nice way, like an old tree. But ain't that the problem? They don't think of nothing and they don't do nothing. They just want everyone to know they's in charge, that's all. We shouldn't be seeing any of their darn faces. They just want to be looked at. Can't hardly tolerate it. Welcome back to I-94, right here on Lumpin' Radio. My name is Mr. Jamie Tracker. As always, I'm joined by Mr. Jeremy Kitchen. Howdy. Mr. Michael Sack. Hello. And you just heard a selection from Catherine Lacey's new novel. It's called Pew. It's out right now from FSG. What we were talking about before we went into the break, um, things being not so simple when you want to provide for somebody or help somebody out, particularly a, a stranger. I think... To me, what what really hit home was the the cunningness of of empathy. Um, a lot of times, the characters in the book, in order to help Pew, and I find this true in my own life, in order to help them, uh, they had to identify with their own pain first, something that they they had buried or not looked at, or tried to forget. And and the thing that would most help is is identifying with this person, not having gone through the same thing they've gone through but having to address a personal pain um and it really it really uh, it came out in their in the dialogue and it it was it was cool to read a book where the protagonist never really spoke uh, yeah i think pew had maybe five or six lines but it came across very clearly um in the way you sketched the uh the characters the the characters of this town actually reminded me. I, I liked them a lot. Like even though it was kind of, um, it was really disheartening to see the decisions they made. Um, I could I could relate to to the struggles they had. You know, there, there's this nameless fear they have of a stranger in their town, and in a ways, it's a, it's like the old trope of the stranger showing up to town and, t- and mm-hmm. taking them in. Yeah. And, and that's kind of why I brought up English horror early okay. on, because that is a very common trope in 70s British horror. Right. Probably because of... Well, I mean, like... Yeah, probably because of sure nuclear th- anxiety, to be honest with you, in the 70s. <laughs> yeah. you know, yeah. Well, also, like, I can think of, like, 80s, 90s, um, like, druggy stories, you know? like Or, or like, you, you, you help your buddy out who maybe has a predilection for heroin, and you wake up and all your stuff is gone the next day. You know what I mean? Like, there are reasons people are afraid to take strangers into their homes. You mean like when I had some punk bands stay at my house and then my records were gone? Are, are, are we going to name that? 
uh, he's dead. So, I don't <laughs> <know>. <laughs> um, but I just wanted to say that it came across what what Jeremy was um, describing came across very clearly in, in a natural way through the dialogue of the characters. They reminded me of the characters in Gilead, actually, um, by Marilyn Robinson. That's oh, a, yeah. mm-hmm. a. There's just something that's so. Um, strong about these people's urge to be good and to do good and in and not just in a superficial way you know but they struggle with with how to do that when confronted with the messiness of things going on outside the community right well i think part of uh, part of my goal with um with the the kind of townspeople or like the the characters other than pew um and i don't think i realized this until later but i think um part of my kind of unconscious agenda was um, I think a lot of times in this country, especially among, um, you know, liberal left-leaning people, it's, we kind of flatten out the idea of, uh, of like a religious, you know, the, the kind of religious Christian right or like even the kind of religious center um, and, and kind of, I think we oversimplify um, what it means to be truly motivated by um, like a, a religious framework of, of how to live. Um, I think ultimately if you, I think really truly being Christian, for instance, is uh, to really do it is a, is a very, um, I think kind of profoundly intellectual task and a very difficult one. And um, that, that's not to say that, that all Christians, you know, behave that way. But I think to actually follow Jesus's teachings um, is enormously difficult and enormously intellectual. Um, and yeah, I, I think I think I didn't realize until until it was over that I wanted some of that complexity to be there. But sitting beside maybe some of the kind of blunter, more kind of fearful reasons why people um, will hide in the religion, that it can be both things, you know, yeah, and we have a tendency to be like, you know, the Christian, right? They're just stupid, and and a lot right. of times, a lot of times they're not stupid, and that's you know that's the difference. But well, they're obviously not stupid because they've had a very well organized political campaign and machine for forty years. <laughs> yeah, and as some people have pointed out, not to not to step on you, Jeremy, but this actually kind of drives me nuts. The, the Christian right are not magicians. They're not winning elections because they have these magical powers. Yeah. They're organized. They're smart. They've been very, very dedicated. And to, they line up behind their candidate. Correct. You know, and that's what, so, one of the whether, sh- whether we disagree with them or not, calling them stupid or ill-informed is just factually wrong. I agree. Right. Catherine, I wanted to... Um, oh, go ahead. Yeah. Well, there's, just, there's also a difference between like, um, peop- like the Christians that are politically active and then the, you know the bulk of kind of, um, I think, religious people that probably don't participate as much. There's a kind of vocal minority that sort of gives a, a, the wrong impression, I think, of the rest of the group. Catherine, I want to tell you just something about the language of the book. And I remember when I was an undergrad, I was also an English major. I was also kicked out of many classes in high school. <laughs> but um, I remember reading a Raymond Chandler short story, and he described uh, the sky is looking bruised. And I, I know it's more common. It's a common descriptor since then. But when I was reading uh, Pew, there was a, a paragraph. Uh, there was a description. It's on page 83. 
and you describe a man and it says, nearby there was a man with hair and skin the color of a dead sky. His stomach and chest rounded out like a whole small person sitting on his own lap. And we just heard that because Shanna read it at the start of the show. Ah, <laughs> but that that description was so apt and amazing. And it's like, it's like one of those things I'm going to think about, like, next time, I, every time I see someone with a pot belly of having a little man, like, sitting in their lap and, um, you know, their, their skin being the color of the that particular type of sky and i i just wanted to point that out to you i i, I always i'm a i don't know why but i'm a big fan of descriptions in fiction and and a lot of people can't do it very well and that you know that's one of those things that's like i'll think about that again so i well, just because oh. because you see it every day and yeah it, it I, made you look at it in a new way and that, that's i love that about fiction i well thank you i'm glad i'm glad it um yeah, i'm glad that that description or, or any of the other ones uh uh, resonated in any way. Um, you know, I, I want to ask first, Catherine, because I don't want to do any spoilers. Um, one of the things I was hinting at in the last comment I made was was a, a, a family secret of... Uh, God, what's the... Uh, well, he dies. What's the, the woman who takes in Pew, though? Miss Gladstone the, the at the beginning? Yeah. Yeah, or Gladstone. Tilda? No, Miss Gladstone. Miss Gladstone. Okay. Um, there, I love Tilda, by the way. There's a... There's a family secret there. Um, well, her husband's on her on his deathbed and yeah. tells tells her a secret, yeah. which we won't give away. Which I think. Not, well, and, and Hilda, Miss Gladstone's correct daughter, Hilda, it knows something but doesn't want to push the envelope too right. much to find out whether What's or not going it's on. true. Yeah, and this is kind of leading into actually something I wanted to bring up because we haven't talked about it, which is the forgiveness festival. You oh, know, yeah. and it's a major part of the book. And again, I don't want to give any spoilers. And people who've read the Le Guin story, um, th there is no direct corollary between the story and, and Lacey's book here. But um, I did want to talk about this a little bit because in reading the book, I had kind of one idea of it. And by the end of the book, I had an, a different idea of it. And when I was reading the ah, book, same. I, I kind I of thought of the lottery. <laughs> well, I was thinking actually about the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa. Hmm. And about how no, I mean, I'm this is you know I may be pulling this out of my butt, but that was actually what I was thinking about how South Africa went through this horrible you know very traumatic experience with apartheid, and instead of a bloody war at the end of it, what the government did when the ANC took in power was they had a truth and reconciliation commission, and people had to stand up and tell the truth and be forgiven for it, and so that. I, I think possibly because we were talking to a South African author and an Australian author yeah. earlier in the month, and that was kind of when I picked the book up. But that kind of went through my head, and obviously that is not necessarily what's going on in your book. But I wondered if you could kind of comment on that, because the power of truth and reconciliation is something we actually really don't talk about very much in this country. And that was actually what kind of got me thinking that this was an interesting book for this particular moment right now after such a divisive election with such uh, vitriol on, on many sides and uh, people really seeming to, unable to confess maybe what they did and kind of come to terms with it. Yeah. Well, I do think there's a, um, I think it's interesting that you thought of, I didn't, I didn't think about this, um, the South African truth and reconciliation, um, uh, interpretation, but I, I think it there's absolutely a corollary there. I do think that there's a kind of uh, there's a particular way that Americans are obsessed with 
um, absolution and um, and yet so unable to do it. Like when you think about um, after World War II in Germany, the way that that country has metabolized the atrocities that happened there, um, you know, not even so long ago. It's not like it took them hundreds of years to acknowledge the Holocaust in a way that it, it sometimes feels like it's taken, like, it, like America is still somehow trying to avoid the fact of uh, chattel slavery being the kind of bedrock of, of the whole country. Oh, yeah, or even World and War II, Japanese internment, yeah, same yeah. thing. You just, you just don't totally. Yeah, totally. Oh, yeah, and it's, yeah, I mean, um, I, this is, yeah, to say nothing about all the other things that America needs to be forgiven the for. The list goes on. But, <laughs> Right, but it's like this, and, and, and I mean also, um, you know, stealing the land of the Native Americans, um, which it, it almost just feels like there's so many that like we've kind of gone into, I mean as a country, we've gone into some sort of um, sort of arrested development about uh, just how much we're not able to do. It sort of feels like, you know, you go into the house of a hoarder and it just seems like it, it would be impossible to clean this house. Like yeah. there's just... There's no, there's just a horde here now. There's no more house, um, and sometimes it feels that way. Although I don't I don't think I'm not a pessimist about um, the possibility of of some sort of real um, attempt at uh, at reconciliation, which will basically take you know the rest of our lifetimes. But like to be to be going down that path of um, of atonement, I guess. On the other hand, um, there's an aspect of forgiveness that um, in the kind of, at least in the Christianity that I was raised in, I was led to believe that the process of asking Jesus to forgive you of your sins included with it that you would ask Jesus to, you know, forgive you for whatever horrible thing you had done. And not only would Jesus forgive you for that, but he would forget it. And that there was this understanding that anything that you did as long as you asked forgiveness for it would be not only um, forgiven but just completely erased from the memory of God <laughs> which I just had a really hard time with you know like like even murderers <laughs> even like even people that did bad things to me like even you know um, does everybody just get this like total uh, wiping clean and like what is what does that even mean um, and I, I do think that there's, that's what Americans actually want. This, this is the like kind of American sort of maximal idea of absolution is we don't want to be just forgiven for, you know, the things that we've done. We want it to not matter and for us to get our like 4th of July um, strawberry and blueberry cake and just like, you know, charge oh, onward yeah, in, our, in our maintain power. Yeah. comfort. Did you think of the the legends of of the sin eaters, which is for for people that don't know, it's it's primarily in the British Isles, but it was a person who ritually ate a meal and in so doing um, consumed the sins of either a village or another person. Um, sin eaters were kind of um, is that mythological? Well, it is, it, but it's it, it was kind of pre-Christian. You know, a sin eater was somebody designated in the village. But it was a ceremony. It was they... a ceremony, so people would come and uh, you couldn't touch or talk to the sin eater while they were the sin eater, and they would come and ritually consume. Um, oh, this was deep. real. It's real. Yes. Oh, no, it's no, old, it's, a, it's a real thing. Old country buffet. It's a real. It's a, yes, old country buffet <laughs> in ten fifty. Full of sins. <laughs> um, was that something you thought of? Because I, I thought of Pew that way as well. 
you know, I, I, I know a little bit about that from research that went into a book that you wouldn't even know that it was in there. But uh, I wasn't thinking about it with this book, but it was in, you know, somewhere in the back of my mind in storage. So I, you know, I, I that that whole concept is fascinating to me. I don't know enough about it, um, really, but um, I, I think that's a totally valid interpretation. Well, people that want to know more about it in pop culture, you can read The Amazing Spider-Man because there's a whole series, and it's on the shelves right now from Marvel Comics. And <laughs> <laughs> speaking of that, we're actually running out of time. Catherine, you, you've this is obviously your most recent book, but can you tell us what's coming up next? Um, I just finished writing another novel, um, and as is the case, usually when I'm just done with writing a novel, I think I'm never going to write another novel again. So there's a part of me that's like, this is the last one. I'm not doing it anymore. Mm -hmm. But probably what will happen is that I'll back into one in, in some time and do it again. Hey, Catherine, I just wanted to say that we're really happy that you're in Chicago. Um, Chicago hey, I'm glad to be here. Chicago gets a, you know, sometimes we get like a, we're like the dumb stepchild of the literary community, and, and we're really happy to <laughs> have you as part of it because uh, I, I was I uh, this was the first book I'd read by you, and I absolutely loved it. Same, and yeah. uh, so we're glad you're here. Yes. And when you, if you get, I'm that, glad to be here. We'll get, we'll take you, even though you're from Mississippi. You're one of us now. Congratulations! <laughs> and if you want to, you know, you know, when you get that novel out, if you want to come back, we'd love to have yeah, you. Yeah, we'd back. love to have you. I would love to come back. Thank you so much. It, it'll be some years, so who knows if um, what will be going on. <laughs> well, we've been talking with Catherine Lacey, as you've just found out she is from Chicago. Uh, she spoke to us today by the miracle of FaceTime from Wicker Park. Uh, Catherine, hopefully when this pandemic's over, we can get you back in the studio and, and have a proper face-to-face -face chat. Her new book is a novel. It's called Pew. It is out from Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux. It is available at all good bookstores and most libraries. I know a certain library in Bridgeport has it. We do. We do have it. All right. With that, Catherine, we're going to give you the last word. As always, we close uh, with a final selection from her book. Once again, thanks to Shannon Van Volt. Once again, thanks to International Anthem. And thank you so much, Catherine, for thank making you time so much, to talk to us. We really appreciate it. Take care, Thank Catherine. you. Yeah, I really, it was a nice time. Thanks, guys. We'll see you next time on I-94 here on Lumpin' Radio. Stephen squinted for a moment, then began. The Forgiveness Festival. Well, there's a very long story about how it came to be, and I'm afraid I'm not the right person to tell all the history about it. But what I can say is that the festival is what sets our community apart from other communities in the area. It is one of the ways we've decided to actively reconcile with our past, unite both sides of our community, and acknowledge that everyone, every single one of us, everyone is born broken. That's what we believe, you know. That's a core part of Christianity. That we're all broken without God. And a few years back, all the preachers in the town got together for a meeting because it was starting to feel like the whole country was particularly angry, and people were always accusing each other. And whole groups of people start blaming whole other groups of people for their problems. Blacks and immigrants, for instance, and women, of course. But I'll admit that, in some ways, it goes in the other direction, too, I suppose. Everybody really blames everybody and never blames themselves. Well, our preachers decided this had gone on long enough, so they prayed about it and they read the Bible about it. And a peculiar thing happened, which is that God spoke to all our preachers, all at once. Hilda muttered something to herself, but Stephen didn't notice and kept talking. And what he told them was to have a special day every year for everyone to confess all their sins together out loud so that we all understand we're all sinful, that we're all broken. There's no use in blaming anyone else for anyone's trouble. Of course, people still want their privacy, so there's blindfolds and curtains that are set up. 
It's very beautiful, Hilda said. Even with the blindfolds, you feel how beautiful it is. Yes, Stephen said, and it's moving to see the community come together. Well, almost. They've always been invited. We invite them every year. And Dr. Corbin, he was part of the group that put it all together anyway, but he couldn't convince his own church to come. That's what I was told anyway. Well, I mean, I can understand why. It's just that... Anyway, that's neither here nor there, Stephen said. Point is, Dr. Corbin is going to bring you to the festival on Saturday so you can see for yourself what it is and what our most important values are. Right. And there are some things you might see at the festival around the way that we decided it would be better for you to know about ahead of time. So it doesn't startle you, Hilda said. On the way to the festival, you may see a lot of policemen in the streets. The guns are symbolic, Hilda seemed to recite from somewhere. They're symbolic of the power of God and of the power of the gifts he's given to us. And also, they're just there to make sure that no one gets hurt. I-94 is Lumpin' Radio's books and literature program, airing every Sunday and Thursday at 11 a.m. Central. This episode featured Catherine Lacey, author of Pew, out now from Ferrara, Strauss, and Giroux. This episode originally aired on November 19, 2020. I-94 is a Lumpin' Radio production, with readings by Shanna Van Volt, show intro and promo voiced by David Green, music by Laurie Johnson and Bill Bennett from the KPM Archive. For more information on I-94 and for past episodes, visit eye94.org. For more information on Lumpin' Radio, visit lumpinradio.com.